Welcome to Capital Conversations, the ERLC's podcast from Washington, D.C., where we help Christians imagine a new way to engage in the public square. I'm your host, Jeff Pickering, and I am joined once again by my colleagues, Chelsea Patterson-Sobelik and Travis Wusso. Greetings. Hey, guys. How's it going? Going well. We are... Uh, we're gonna we're gonna take a trip around the world on uh, this week's episode, talking about all the different uh, international stories, both from our foreign affairs engagement from here in Washington D.C. How how the United States under the Biden administration is positioning itself on the the world stage, uh, and then we're gonna work through three interesting uh, three big stories, three big international stories that we think would be helpful for Christians to consider and then talk a little bit about our advocacy as it relates to all of these issues. So I'm, I'm excited to jump into all of this uh, with both of you, Chelsea and Travis. But, but before we jump into uh, the topic of conversation around the world and these different international stories, I do want to come back home to the United States. Uh, we're recording this right after Super Bowl Sunday. So Travis, Chelsea, uh, how was your how was your Super Bowl party? You know, it's it's sad. It's 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 just yet another you know example of how much our lives have uh, changed and have been um, impacted by the pandemic. We we hung out with our other pod family. Um, I very quietly rooted for Brady and Gronk. I'll you know which I I recognize as a a uh, unpopular and despised opinion, but I was rooting for Brady. I wanted to see, I wanted to see the uh, the Bucks win. You know, we had some frozen foods from Trader Joe's and uh, <laughs> some. I mean, it's you know, it, it's just sad. You know what what the pandemic has done, but it's it was at least the first half was an exciting game. Yeah. Did you like the Did you like the halftime show? Uh, you know, I'm a fan of the weekend. I thought it was you know it was is a little odd. But uh, but I thought it was good. I Speaking liked of, the memes that came out of the halftime show. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's exactly right. Speaking of pandemics, I don't know if Gary, our audio engineer, is going to let this be in the show, but that's my dog barking. Uh, that might be the first time it's happened on the show. So I'm going to go. Uh, I'm going to go take care of her. Uh, but Chelsea, what about you? So it was good. I'll be honest. I didn't really have a dog in the fight. Uh, football is not my favorite sport. I'm much more of a basketball fan, so I was just there for the food and the the fun. But we had fun. Nice. I the other thing I enjoyed was uh one of our teammates on our DC team is a huge Kansas City fan and we yes. also have another <laughs> teammate uh who who lives in Kansas City, uh Julie Masson who um I can't remember her new title, but uh is on our uh, external engagement team, but trolling both of them sort of gingerly until the game really fell apart, and you could tell that both of them were were truly in the depths of despair. You know, at that point, you kind of had to had to let things off. That was fun. <laughs> yeah, it got a little bit awkward on some of our group texts there in <laughs> in the fourth quarter. But um, at, one, at one point, Brooks uh, threatened to call nine one one on me for. <laughs> The emotional damage I was creating, uh, which I regret. Yeah, I I told her that uh, that it would be best speaking as a uh, as a as a fan of a team that won a World Series and hasn't won another World Series since, although they've been very successful getting there. I told her it'd be best if you just talk to uh, talk to your own your own fans for a little while. <laughs> Don't talk to any of us. 
<laughs> but uh, Travis, I am going to say I am going to defend your choice of rooting for Brady. I never have rooted for Brady in a Super Bowl. But Neither have I. I. I I think after watching The Last Dance on ESPN and hearing stories about what it was like for people to watch Michael Jordan, you know, when he was just proving to be the absolute greatest basketball player of all time, I realized that's what's happening here as a 43-year-old Tom Brady, once again, just by sheer force of his athletic ability and discipline wills a team that was i didn't realize this he had the best winning percentage in the nfl and then he went to a team that had the worst winning percentage in the nfl not just the nfl but the worst winning percentage in any team in professional sports (laughs) and took that team to win the super bowl yes oh wow i didn't realize it was that it was that bad no it's it's incredible Uh, and it wasn't and it wasn't just i mean i you know we, we don't need to get too far into the details on this but it was also his mental game i mean you you know the 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 Chiefs stopped them and uh you know for the first few drives and Brady mm-hmm. just picked him apart. Yeah. Um, you know, you could tell that he he got into the honey badger's head a little bit at the end of this of the second half. Uh you just you just saw total total <laughs> dominance. It's incredible. Yeah, it was. It was it was incredible. It was a it was a fun time. Um weird time. But fun time. I was glad they honored uh, so many healthcare workers. Uh, I think there were like seven thousand. No doubt, seven thousand. Really cool storyline. So we're we're going to cover some big international stories that we think would be good for Christians uh, to know about and to consider uh, as it relates to ERLC's advocacy work uh, and just how how we as Christians should be aware of what's happening oftentimes to our own brothers and sisters in the faith who are in the persecuted church globally. Um, but there has been some news, uh, and I, I would even say it, it seems to be breaking right now here at the start of this week, that the Biden administration is looking to rejoin the UN Human Rights Council. So, Travis, why don't you start us out uh, by letting us know what that's all about? Well, so right now we we don't know a ton of details, so we don't know what the terms of, of reentry are. We just know that this week the Biden administration is planning to uh, rejoin the Human Rights Council. Uh, the U.S. left the Human Rights Council back in 2018 uh, when then Ambassador Nikki Haley was uh, ambassador to the United Nations. And our our departure was sort of predicated on, on, on several, I mean, significant problems. The first uh, has to do with the membership on the council. A number of known human rights abusers uh, are not just members of the council, but um, have been leaders in the council. Right now, Cuba is a member of the Human Rights Council, which is which is truly outrageous. Uh, the second is more structural. It has to do with how members get onto the council. And, you know, we had suggested and worked towards a number of changes in terms of how members would be elected, and, and those were resisted uh, for a whole host of reasons. And the third is uh, the targeting of, of Israel. I mean, Israel has been targeted by the Human Rights Council an unbelievable number of times, you know, by— uh, and you know, with statements led by uh, countries that are themselves uh, human rights abusers, and so you know, the 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 Trump administration took took a step back from the you know from the Human Rights Council again back in uh, 2018. But I think the you know from our standpoint, these are real and legitimate concerns. I think what we've seen since the U.S.'s departure is that there has been a real leadership vacuum at the Human Rights Council and other countries, including China, uh, have stepped into that vacuum and further delegitimized the Human Rights Council. And so, you know, we we still have to learn more about what, you know, what the terms of, of rejoining are. But we have, I mean, 
it's we have a significant piece of leverage. A lot of the current members of the Human Rights Council would like for the U.S. to rejoin, uh, and we shouldn't rejoin for free. We shouldn't rejoin uh, without demanding some of these uh, some structural changes. And again, we we don't know a lot of the details. I certainly hope that we're not uh, we're not doing that. And if and if we do, it will only delegitimize uh, an international body that means a lot to the rest of the world. No, Travis, I think that's right. And I think it is it is absurd, like you said, that, you know, China, which is one of the world's uh, leading human rights violators, is on that commission. Um, Travis, I, I'd be curious if you could speak to a little bit of the ERLC's engagement with the UN uh, Human Rights Commission. Yeah, we do a, a fairly significant amount of work at the at the Human Rights Council, most mostly through a process that's called the Universal Periodic Review. We've talked about it on the podcast before, where we will submit a report that's specific to a particular country and talk about the challenges and and praise the country where we can for for issues that uh, where, where the country's getting it right. And, you know, it's, I mean, because the thing is, the the Human Rights Council doesn't, and, and the UN as a whole really doesn't make US news. It's not, it is not important here. It, it, Americans don't pay much attention to it, but the rest of the world really does. And, and if the UN criticizes your country, it is headline news, you know, for weeks where, um, you know, in, in that particular country. And so that's, that's the reason why we, why we engage there. The other reason is that, um, you know, there, there are a lot of organizations that are kind of on the other side of us ideologically that, uh, we, we feel like we need to counter. Uh, and so we work with a number of organizations in Geneva to, uh, to bear witness there and, and to, uh, represent the issues that, uh, that Christians should be concerned about. And if folks want to know more uh, in response to your question, Chelsea, about the ERLC-specific engagement at the UN in Geneva, I've got an article I wrote after uh, traveling to Switzerland uh, with Travis uh, a couple years ago uh, where we were engaging on religious liberty issues in uh, in Malaysia. And the thing that was so incredible to me about being there and because the ERLC has special consultative status we were able to walk directly onto the floor of the UN uh, there in Geneva, Switzerland, uh, and be a part and, and meet. It, it was a really just a wild experience to see a room where the entire world is and uh, gives us access uh, to be able to advocate for the vulnerable globally, uh, all in one space, uh, which was really neat. So I'll, I'll I'll link to that article here in the show notes. But about the UN Human Rights Council, um, you know, we we talked about how China is is on that, and this I think segues nice into the story, Chelsea, that you are bringing to our roundtable uh, today. Uh, so tell us tell us more about that. It's it's an update on the Uyghur genocide situation. Um, so, Chelsea, what is this story and what do we need to know about it? Uh, Jeff, there's been a lot of developments over the past few weeks um, in regards to China and the Uyghur uh, genocide situation um, there that we haven't discussed on our podcast yet. So on January 19th, on his very last day um, in office, Secretary of State Mike Pompeo made an official determination that China is, quote, committing genocide and crimes against humanity in Xinjiang, China, for targeting Uyghur Muslims and members of other ethnic and religious minority groups. Um, So this genocide determination, um, the U.S. was the first country to um, call what is happening in Xinjiang um, 
as a actual genocide. Um, and the term genocide comes from the Genocide Convention, which the UN passed, um, and it carries huge uh, global implications and legal implications for how we ought to respond to China. And of course, we would encourage many other nations to follow suit and label what's happening in Xinjiang as genocide, because that is actually what is happening. Secretary Pompeo stated that one of the the key uh, factors in his uh, determination was the Chinese Communist Party's um, efforts to oppress uh, Uyghur women with birth control measures and highlighting our friend Adrian Zinn's report delineating how the CCP is subjecting Uyghur women to forced pregnancy checks um, and forced sterilization, which, again, fits under the the uh, genocide convention's um, definition of what an actual genocide is. So um, we're very grateful the ERLC was uh, active in advocating for that uh, determination with then-Secretary Pompeo and current Secretary uh, Tony Blinken has um, endorsed the genocide as well. So grateful to see those um, those important steps. Um, so what, the story that I want to highlight today is a BBC report called uh, Their Goal is to Destroy Everyone. And it highlights in much greater detail than I think has been discussed before uh, the systematic um, rape, sexual abuse and torture of Uyghur women in those camps in Xinjiang. Um, and I'll be honest, the first time I read it, I couldn't even make it through the report because it's so explicit and it's so horrific of the torture of Uyghur it's women. It's horrible. It's it is terrible. Un, it is unimaginable. Truly unimaginable. I think I've only gotten through it once because it's so gut-wrenching and uh, just horrible what is happening to those women. So um, several Uyghur women who uh, escaped uh, Xinjiang were interviewed for for the piece, and they uh, detail the systematic sexual abuse and violence of, of the Uyghur women, not only by the guards, but also by Chinese men in the camps. So we'll link to it in the show notes. I would encourage folks to read it. Again, a warning that it is very hard to read and difficult to read. Um, but I also wanted to, to discuss what's next, um, you know, kind of some important next steps. Um, you know, human rights in China must continue to be bipartisan. We've seen a lot of bipartisan support for congressional bills that have passed and been signed into law. And, you know, it's very important that this this work continues to be bipartisan. And then additionally, um, something that we've worked on Quite a bit at the ERLC is the the issue of forced labor, and you know pointing to the role of the business community um, and how they ought to not only think about dollars and cents, but also think about the moral implications of where and with whom they are doing business. And um, now that a legal determination of genocide has been made, you know the business community should really step back and think very carefully about where they're doing business. Well, Chelsea, I you know, really appreciate that you, one, I will just say, we're willing to not only read this entire article, because it's it's one of these that I felt, I felt myself reading out of almost like one eye or like the corner of my eye as I read through it, because it is, the stories are so graphic and so sensitive. So again, warning to anybody who uh, is going to click the link, 
but you you can take take our word for it. I, I guess I could I could phrase it that way that the situation is horrific, and um, you know one of, one of the most one of the most important museums here in Washington D.C. is the Holocaust Museum, and you know the refrain about the Holocaust is that we should never let it happen again, never again. Well, uh, never again is happening now in China in uh, against the Uyghurs uh, in these camps, uh, and it is it is horrific. It's something. It's a story that we've covered through multiple podcasts uh, and and multiple articles on our site. I mean, too many for us to for us to even list in the show notes. I'm, I might throw a few in there, but um, I, I think the one you know the one sort of uh, response that I would that I would say to you bringing this story to our attention is the encouragement that I that I felt that I saw when Secretary of State Pompeo declared this as genocide as uh, as we had called for in a letter that that uh, our president Russell Moore sent Secretary Pompeo uh, last year but also very quickly uh, at the time Secretary designate Blinken uh, was asked about this uh, designation and he said that would be my assessment too which is diplomatic speak for yeah I agree um, and uh, and it and it appears that the uh, Blinken's team at the State Department and the Biden administration is is continuing that same posture to recognize uh, that genocide is indeed happening uh, in China. And I'm encouraged by that. Yeah, and I want to pick up on that on exactly that point uh, because I think one of the things that we are carefully watching and will be working on is what what is the Biden administration's policy going to be towards China? You know, ultimately, what part of what we've been trying to do for the last four years is uh, is to elevate the space of human rights among the 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 whole set of concerns that the Trump administration had towards China. You know, we you know, the Trump administration was talking about countering China economically and with trade and with foreign aid and militarily. Uh, but we have felt that that the government must also confront China on a moral plane uh, with respect to what it's doing. You know, Jeff, one of the things you said is, you know, never again keeps happening. Never again happened in uh, to to Christians and Yazidis um, in Iraq. And, you know, I, I think one of the one of the tests that not just the U.S. but in, but the entire international system has to face with China is what are we going to actually do about it, um, and how how important will human rights be um, up against all the other you know all the other concerns that we have towards uh, have with China? Our economies and the economies of China and the West are hopelessly entangled. Uh, China has the ability to cause serious pain to any individual country that speaks out against it. We've seen that time and time again with Australia, the EU, and and UK, and on and on and on. So I, I, I do think that this this situation in, in Xinjiang, the genocide in Xinjiang, is a, is a real test. And um, I hope that the Biden administration is, is up to that test, up to that challenge. We will certainly be pushing them to do so uh, and holding them accountable to do so, because the genocide uh, is being committed there against the Uyghur people in Xinjiang, and we must do something about it. 
Uh, Jeff, you had mentioned that the CCP, uh, we've we've done a lot of work on combating the CCP, um, and the CCP is uh, persecuting Uyghurs in a, a number of different ways. And again, I, I highlighted the issue of Uyghur women today, uh, but Travis briefly mentioned uh, the Yazidis. And I just wanted to make the point that um, the use of sexual violence throughout um, history has been one of the you know, an age-old tool that oppressive governments and oppressive um, people seeking to oppress uh, readily use. We saw uh, against the Yazidi girls just horrible sexual abuse there and with the Uyghur women. Um, and we're going to touch on another group that was uh, persecuted as well in a minute. But just wanted to highlight that, you know, that's one of the age-old ways that people are used, people use to oppress other people and... Um, right. You know, I often think if I was in one of those camps, how would I want someone to fight for me? And I hope that, you know, our little cup in the ocean makes a difference. And um, this is not a new, not a new issue. Um, and well, I mean, to, to sharpen your point, I mean, when it when it comes to religious persecution, it is always women who pay the, the highest price. Um, and and I think the this new report from uh, from uh, Dr. Adrian Zenz shows that that is exactly what's what's happening in Xinjiang. Travis, I want to transition to your story now. It takes us uh, to a different a different part of the world, and I appreciated you uh, bringing this when we were when we were first talking about uh, doing this roundtable style podcast on different important international stories last week. Uh, you brought this to me because this is something that I hadn't really thought about, uh, and it relates to uh, part of the world that you've lived in before. So, with that, I'll I'll turn it over to you. What's the story that you're bringing to us? This yeah. Week? So the the story, and, and we'll link to this op-ed in the show notes. But the the op-ed is is by my friend Robert Nicholson, who's the president of the Philos Project, uh, and the title of the article is Abraham's Missing Child Christians. And the subtitle is Jews and Muslims Make Peace, But This Endangered Minority Lacks a Regional Voice. And his point is that, you know, as we have rightly celebrated the Abraham Accords that unfolded over 2020 as the state of Israel uh, established new diplomatic relations and strengthened diplomatic relations with a number of, of countries uh, that, you know, were, were previously its, its enemies from uh, the UAE, uh, to Qatar, to Morocco. Um, I, I know that I'm leaving several out. Uh, Sudan, it has been incredible to watch. But the point that Robert makes in his piece is, well, there, there, there are three children of Abraham, um, and there are also, you know, large numbers of, of historic Christian communities uh, that date back to, you know, the first century, uh, in uh, Lebanon, in Iraq. We've talked a lot about uh, Christians in Iraq on this podcast over the last few years. And his point is, where where is their seat at this table? You know, as as the region is making peace, what does this mean for Christians? And, you know, his, his, his peace concludes, as you might expect, with an encouragement to the Biden administration to, to take this issue up and to recognize that they don't really have uh, a country that uh, that can stand in for their rights and interests. He points to uh, Greece, uh, which is kind of in the neighborhood. He points to Russia as a possibility, but you know there there are issues uh, with uh, with both of those countries carrying the mantle. Uh, and his point is that the United States has an opportunity to uh, 
uh, to really step in. And um, so I think the, you know, the, the question I wanted to pose for, you know, for our team is, you know, what, how, how does this intersect with the work that we, uh, we've done as a team? How, how have we worked uh, to support and uh, to advocate for the rights of historic Christian communities in the Middle East and North Africa? Yeah, so in 2018, a bill called the Iraq and Syria Genocide Relief and Accountability Act passed Congress and was signed by by the president, and the ERLC was very involved in that. And I know we were talking quite a bit about genocide on the podcast today, but we've done a lot of work on on different um, issues of genocide. Um, so what does this bill do? What's interesting there is that that wasn't really planned when we when we talked about this uh, topic for this week's podcast uh, of international stories. But I think it does. I mean, it's just giving me a sense, even as we're talking about it, and I think uh, our listeners' senses, as y'all listen back to this, that there has been a lot of persecution and a lot of really horrific stories and, and stories of genocide of, of recent years. So uh, not planned, uh, but I think it's instructive. So uh, Chelsea, Absolutely. HR 390, you were talking about that. Sorry to, sorry to interrupt. <laughs> No, I'm so glad you made that point. Um, So the bill um, seeks to provide humanitarian aid to the victims of genocide in Iraq and Syria and hold the perpetrators accountable for their actions. Um, And just as an aside, um, it'll be interesting to see what types of legislation come from Congress after labeling um, what's happening in China as a genocide. One of the the helpful tools of calling... um, what is happening, a genocide, is that Congress uh, can act and provide humanitarian relief to uh, to those victims of genocide. So the ERLC was hugely instrumental in working on H.R. 390 um, to help uh, persecuted people and victims of, of genocide there. And, and that was a way that our that our Congress was able to specifically um, specifically stand in the gap for Christians for Abraham's missing missing child as this as this article referenced in in that part of the world. So I, I think the way I think about answering your question, Travis, about like where this intersects with our work and it's something that we've we've talked about often and maybe you can give some more specifics. I'll, I'll just kind of lay out the lay out the theory here and then and then let you uh, let you contextualize it. but but it's that religion is real and uh, Often the case here in here in Washington, but I, I would say even broader than just Washington, but kind of our Western culture and, and the the lens through which we um, see these kinds of issues of justice on the global stage, ways to broker peace deals um, like the uh, like like the the Middle East and in the in the in the turmoil uh, you know generational turmoil there and, and and how to find our way through some of these issues is that people kind of because because maybe religion isn't isn't a big part of of many of our elites uh, lives in the West they think about it as almost a non-factor in in different parts of the world as as if it's just like oh well we just need to worry about education or economics um and and we can you know make our way through and you know religion is just kind of heritage but that's not the case we we know that religion is is our identity i mean as followers of christ we we say it all the time here at the ERLC um, and it's and it's quoting uh, it's quoting a theme of Dr. Morrison ministry um, that we can actually be American citizens best when we're not American citizens first. It's our second citizenship. Our ultimate and our first citizenship is to the kingdom of Christ. We are Christians. 
that's who we are. And we have more in common with, with Christians in Jerusalem. We have more in common with Christians in Nigeria or Christians in China uh, than we do with non-Christian fellow Americans, because ultimately we're going to spend eternity with those brothers and sisters in Christ. So I, I just think what's interesting about this op-ed is that it's reframing for us um, a, a way to think about these types of global peace accords uh, through the lens of religion is not only real, but it's a dominant part of our identity. And I appreciate right. that. Right. And and I think, you know, we, we have to acknowledge that, I mean, it, it would be a mistake, and we're, we're certainly not advocating for the State Department to view religion as the only or, you know, maybe even the dominant way of of thinking about the world as you know, as sort of a a, a constellation of civilizations that uh, can be identified by uh, religion and that stand up against each other. But as you pointed out, Jeff, I mean the the religion is a huge factor in how people behave. People sometimes take make decisions that are against their quote unquote own interest. If you view interest in material terms or geopolitical terms or financial terms. Because they believe something, because they because they have religious beliefs, and uh, you know, I think one of the things that the Obama administration really got wrong in its Middle East policy is that they they really downplayed the the, the way that religion shapes people's identities, shapes who they believe themselves to be, and also shapes the decisions that they make. And what we've seen over the last four years is a sort of recalibration of how we conceive of faith as a part of statecraft. And so one of the things that we'll be advocating for with the Biden administration is ensuring that faith is not ignored or or just seen as a way of explaining what people do for their for their own reasons, but that, you know, as you pointed out, Jeff, I mean it, it's a very simple proposition, but it's but it has profound implications that these religion is real and it really does impact and and change the way that uh, that people behave and think, and we have to take that into account in in a uh, in a real way as we think about statecraft and foreign policy. And to round out this section of the podcast, the third story that I'd like to bring your attention to happens in Southeast Asia. This is the very tragic military coup that is uh, that is unfolding this month in the country of Myanmar, also known as Burma. So the story that I'll link to in the show notes that I encourage you to go check out to learn more about this situation is an explainer from the BBC, and it's titled Myanmar Coup, What is Happening and Why? So earlier this month, uh, the military in Myanmar once again took over uh, through a violent coup, throwing the democratically elected leaders in prison. They, they may be in house arrest. It's a, it's a developing story. But this is just one more coup uh, in, that, in that country because the military, ever since the uh, country of Myanmar came out from under uh, the British Empire in the mid-20th century, the military was in charge. A brutal military junta was in charge there from 1962 to 2011, when a gradual ease of their power began, returning control of the government to civilian power. Uh, the leader who is most responsible for returning Myanmar uh, to uh, democracy and civilian control is, is a woman who you may be familiar with because she's world famous and a Nobel Peace Prize winner. Her name is Aung San Suu Kyi. I actually first learned about Aung San Suu Kyi in, in 2009, I believe it was, at a U2 concert of all places. As Travis is laughing at me now for bringing up YouTube, well, it's the best. It's the best band, right, Jeff? They are the best band. They are the best band in the world. That's right. <laughs> um, and 
And I and I thought rooting for my rooting for Brady was an unpopular opinion. But go ahead. Okay. Okay. Yeah. Well, um, the the millions of us that uh, that attend their concerts regularly in stadiums uh, would like to have. I've been about, to a U two concert. I like them. They're, they're great. So yes, I learned about her and uh, the country uh, Myanmar at this concert in 2009 because Bono leverages his global rock star status to bring attention to global human rights issues. Uh, and so, you know, here from this BBC article about Suu Kyi, uh, she spent nearly 15 years in detention between 1989 and 2010 because she organized rallies calling for democratic reform and free elections. She was awarded the Nobel Peace Prize while under house arrest in 1991. And in 2015, she led her political party to victory in Myanmar's first openly contested election in 25 years. But she was attempting in these years, uh, it's now 2021, so six years later, she she has been attempting to lead a very complicated country where, though there was this gradual liberalization, the military remained in a really strong position. And it was a shaky relationship between democratically elected leaders and military leaders. So this past November, uh, November of 2020, there was another election. Aung San Suu Kyi's party won overwhelmingly, but the military, in recognizing where things were moving more in her direction than in theirs, they have now taken her captive and uh, and taken back control through a coup. And they're doing it all under the auspices of uh, voter fraud. They're saying there was massive voter fraud in the November election. You can't trust it. It was stolen from us. Because you can't trust it, then we are, you know, we're going to we're gonna take back control. So the story is a reminder that democracy is really fragile, but it's also a reminder that when there isn't a clear line between military power uh, and the rule of law, the vulnerable always, always get hurt. And this, this is what led to Aung San Suu Kyi's uh, tarnished reputation because as a government leader, she was involved in some of this uh, hurting of the vulnerable. And Chelsea, uh, I was curious if you could share more about why she has become such a complicated figure in her role as the leader in Myanmar. Yeah, she is a very complicated figure, like you said. So one of the issues that I alluded to earlier was a genocide that happened in Myanmar um, in 2017. Um, the Myanmar military uh, started brutally persecuting what is known as the Rohingya Muslims. It uh, They are a largely Muslim minority in um, Myanmar. And they started uh, brutally oppressing and attacking them, and hundreds of thousands of them fled into across the border into Bangladesh. And Aung San Suu Kyi basically turned her head and looked the other way and uh, did not acknowledge that um, what was happening in her own country. So I think, again, comp- very complicated figure who uh, a few decades earlier was heralded as this, um, you know. Nobel mm, Peace Prize winner. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, and for being a human rights icon, and now, um, in in the past, you know, five six years, a genocide of the Rohingya Muslims happened on her watch in her country, um, and the UN uh, sent in a fact finding mission, and she basically turned her head and looked the other way, and has not acknowledged what happened. So, um, again, we have a lot more on the Rohingya Muslims on our website. And uh, last summer, we also then Secretary Pompeo a letter urging him to designate uh, the crisis as a genocide as well. 
one of the other lessons we need to learn from all of this is that military power must submit to the rule of law. It's why our own military leaders here in the United States swear an oath to the Constitution. All of our government submits to the Constitution. In Myanmar, the violent power of the military wasn't submitted to the peaceful power of democracy. And in that kind of attention, the guns will always win. They won both in this coup, as they have taken over power again, uh, but they also won in the terror of genocide against the Rohingya in, in, in 2017. Uh, and Aung San Suu Kyi has a role to play in all of this. And, and sadly, her attempts to thread this needle just didn't work. And the military is taking back over again. And in all of it, the vulnerable suffered. The vulnerable are suffering right now under this coup. And the vulnerable Rohingya suffered uh, in the genocide. So I think the last thing that you know really should be said about all of this is that this should haunt us in the United States as we have just come through a very turbulent uh, election and interregnum between the election and the inauguration. Uh, and in many ways, our problems are still with us. Many Americans, millions of Americans, still believe the big lie about the 2020 election. Uh, and this coup in Myanmar happened ultimately because military leaders were not submitting to the peaceful power of democracy. Now, thankfully, here in America, one of the reasons that even after the violent insurrection of January 6th, we still had a peaceful transfer of power is because our military and our systems of government do still submit to the rule of law. So I think one of the most clear examples, a striking example of how our uh, system of government works and how it must work to protect democracy is an op-ed uh, published in the Washington Post uh, on January 3rd. So this is, you know, it, it turns out it was a very prophetic piece and it was written by uh, the 10 former living defense secretaries, which is just stunning to think that these 10 men all decided to write this op-ed together. And it was titled, Involving the Military in Election Disputes Would Cross into Dangerous Territory. I'll link to it in the show notes as well. I think, I think it's really worth consideration here, especially as we're watching this coup play out in Burma. Uh, the military has no role to play in our elections here in the United States, and the same, the same should have, and, and hopefully one day the same will be true in Myanmar. So, Travis, I want to come to you to uh, land this plane. It's been a far-reaching conversation, but I'm curious if you can make some of these issues real to us and our advocacy here in D.C. What are what are some of the things uh, that we are advocating for right now uh, and in the in the immediate near future at ERLC? So the immediate next the immediate thing we're, we're focusing on in terms of our international religious freedom advocacy is for the nomination and confirmation of an ambassador at large for international religious freedom. We have uh, joined and uh, sent up a coalition letter on this this topic as well, as well as making some recommendations about who that ambassador should be, the sort of profile uh, that the next ambassador should should fit. Um, and then as well as some recommendations to the Biden administration, to the new Biden State Department um, on how to approach these issues and how to continue the good work of the International Religious Freedom Office uh, that I think has, has really been upgraded over the last four years due to former ambassador-at-large uh, for religious freedom, Sam Brownback. I mean, I, I think you there. there's no way to say too much about how much 
uh, about how great his his work was over the last several years in terms of uh, organizing and elevating the the outside coalition of of organizations working on that uh, working on these issues as well as elevating the issue within the State Department and, and within the administration and so I think you know from our standpoint uh, the thing that we're looking for is that a, a really strong ambassador takes over the reins and uh, is appointed and or nominated and confirmed very quickly. Uh, so that uh, the work of that office uh, can continue. Because as, as we've just talked about, we have talked about three genocides that have occurred in, in the last uh, 10 years, some of which are, are ongoing still, There are hu- and, and all of which have a religious dimension to them and uh, an international religious freedom dimension to them. And so, you know, we, you know, th- this is not a time for this post to sit empty. And, uh, and we hope that, that President Biden will, uh, will make an appointment or make a nomination very quickly quickly. Travis, one one more thing uh, that the ERLC is working on is uh, that we've advocated for over the past uh, past few years is um, an increase in the refugee admissions um, number. It was cut down to 12,000 last year. Only 12,000 refugees were admitted uh, last year. And President Biden signed an executive order uh, saying that he will raise the annual uh, cap on refugee admissions to 125,000. Um, that will begin at the beginning of the fiscal year um, in October. So again, this is an issue that the ERLC has advocated for a very robust refugee resettlement uh, program because that does uh, all of the issues that we've highlighted today, uh, having a robust uh, refugee program. You know, the the U.S. for a long time has been a place where people have been welcomed and uh, people fleeing persecution have been welcomed. And we think it's, it's good and right that we have Uh, a a robust uh, refugee resettlement program. This is Capital Conversations, an ERLC podcast from Washington, D.C. If you enjoyed today's show, found it helpful, I'd encourage you to to send a link to this podcast uh, to a friend or family member in your community. Be sure to subscribe to Capital Conversations wherever you are listening, whether that's on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or anywhere else, so you never miss an episode. While you're there, uh, leave us a rating and a review. This really will help others find our show, and we would love to welcome as many folks as possible around the Capital Conversations roundtable. Resources from today's episode are available in the show notes as well as at ERLC.com. Thanks so much for joining us today, and we look forward to being back together with you next week.